This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today uh, for this 113th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's December 10th, 2022, so we're getting ever closer to Christmas. And as we expected, the numbers are starting to go up uh, here in Connecticut. The positivity rate last week was about 9%. Now it's about 9.84. And a lot of this is attributable, uh, attributable uh, to the holiday parties, right? And, and people want to get out and, and meet with others and socialize. And yet masks are something you don't see very much. Uh, last night, I was working at the Mohegan Sun, where we had uh, MMA, mixed martial arts, and it was a, a huge crowd. I'd have to say there were probably about 8,000 people there. Uh, I think I could, I could really count on one hand all the masks I'd seen, in, including the doctors. So there's this tendency to get away from using masks, even when we know the numbers are going up. We've heard about the triple epidemic and what it's doing and and really our problem is that hospitalizations are rising the post thanksgiving figures that week post thanksgiving over 35,000 people were hospitalized in this country last week and this stresses the system it puts stress on a system that can't handle it we've seen this before right we've seen this when omicron first hit us we saw with this when the pandemic first hit us, that too many people are in the hospital and we can't take care of other people who have cardiac problems, neurologic problems, cancer, motor vehicle accidents. People are backed up in our emergency rooms. And it's even worse at pediatric centers here at Connecticut Children's, where my son-in-law works, um, and uh, he's a pediatrician. They are inundated with viruses, pneumonias, taking up beds from conditions that are, to some degree, avoidable. We've talked about this. Vaccinations keep people out of the hospital. That's the reason for getting vaccinated. Stay out of the hospital and don't die. So even though you may get COVID or you may get the flu, it won't be to the degree that you need to take a hospital bed from somebody who will need it more. The other thing we've come up against now is the fact that we have fewer drugs available. And if you go to the pharmacy, you're going to see the cold and remedy aisle with a lot of empty slots. Again, we weren't expecting the system to be this overwhelmed. So a lot of hospitals now have to go back to compounding which is old school trying to get the different chemicals and ingredients together to mix a drug one in particular i heard about was albuterol right it's for an inhaler especially used for people with asthma 
And to do that, to just make a limited number of doses, takes about four and a half hours. So it takes a long time, but we've had to go back to this. So again, we're putting more stress on the system for things we can avoid. And how do you avoid them? You avoid these big parties. And if you're going to go to one, wear a mask. Or just go to say hello. But be really careful with that. Now sometimes you read about a study that just makes a lot of sense. And, and, and it's like, why didn't somebody think of this before? And that was a study I just read done by the folks at Massachusetts uh, Eye and Ear Hospital. And it was published this week in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And it's about the temperature in the nose. So we've talked about the nose is the entryway for a lot of these viruses. And the idea of some barrier in the nose, right, some mucosal barrier serving as a way of avoiding all of these respiratory viruses. Well, in this study... They looked at uh, something called extracellular vesicles, and these are uh, tiny sacs uh, filled with fluid that swarm when a virus or some other invader comes into the nose, right? And what they found is that if you keep your nose warm, more of these vesicles are available to fight off infection. So we've always thought, well, you go out in the cold, it's because of the cold temperature outside that you're more susceptible. You're going to catch a cold, right? We say that all the time. Or we thought a lot had to do with being indoors and being around people. But a lot has to do, according to this study, with the warmth of your nose. And the warmer you keep your nose, the more likely you are to fight off an infection. And that's where masks come in. Because what does a mask do? We keep thinking of it as a physical barrier, but it also keeps the inner lining of your nose warm. So it's one of those things that kind of makes sense and we didn't think of, but easy enough to implement. We're not asking people to take a drug, okay? We're not asking you to do anything dramatic here, but just thinking about it, even when you're outdoors trying to keep your nose warm, wearing a gaiter or a scarf, uh, could make a big difference, even as much as the temperature in the nose just dropping by 9 degrees uh, was what the report showed. So uh, I think that's something to keep in mind, something a little handy there. Uh, the military vaccine mandate uh, could end. Uh, I've, I've got a problem with this, folks. Uh, you know, when it comes to the military, you really want to keep your armed forces healthy, right? And somehow this has become a political issue. It's always been that you're in the military and your job is to stay healthy so you could defend the country. One of the ways we've known for the last hundred or so years is by vaccination. There are mandatory vaccines, especially if you're going to a place where you may become ill. But suddenly when it comes to COVID, this is a political issue now. And it appears that the Republican leadership uh, are rejecting the current requirement that military personnel be vaccinated. 
And they say, well, it's a mandate. Well, it, it's a requirement. And they're afraid that people won't join the military because of this requirement. If you're not joining the military because of a requirement over a vaccine, you didn't belong in the military to begin with. And if you're leaving because of it, you probably joined for the wrong reasons. So I, I don't understand how keeping people healthy and people who are supposed to defend our country healthy has in some way become a political issue. Just don't get it. But people will find a political issue anywhere there's a possibility of getting more votes. This day in medicine, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, because we're going to talk about this being a future day in medicine. And that is um, that we remember Dr. Anthony Fauci, who will be retiring and stepping down from his position um, after 50 years in public health and government service. This month he announced that he was going to leave the government. He said he's not retiring, but he is leaving government service. And he's been the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Everybody knows him. And I don't know that everybody knows the history behind him. I first became aware of Dr. Fauci in the 70s and 80s. And his emphasis in his research at that time was autoimmune and inflammatory disorders. So he did so much work in developing drugs that we use commonly today to fight things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, right, that we take all the time now were part of the things that he helped develop and it then grew especially when it came to it came to the AIDS endemic uh, pandemic and uh, and its work with his work with Ebola he actually said his his greatest contribution was on the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief in that one effort in coming up a way to treat people who are HIV positive, it's estimated that 20 million lives were saved. Try As a physician, you know, you hope that maybe in your career you've saved a handful of lives, okay? When you think of being in public health and being able to do something may have saved 20 million lives. It's hard to wrap your head around that just from that. We're not counting Ebola, and we're not counting COVID. He served seven presidents, and he's now about to be 82 years old. And it's a great story. I mean, it's a story for a movie. I mean, his family were Italian immigrants who moved to Brooklyn. He went to Regis High School in Manhattan. Regis High School is a Jesuit high school that only the brightest of the bright get into. And he was there and then went to Holy Cross. Uh, so it, it's a great American story from that standpoint. Um, and, and to those of us in the profession uh, who know of his work, I mean, we'll always refer to him as doctor. Uh, you hear politicians call him Tony and whatever, but it, it's doctor. He deserves that title, even among us. Now, it's also become the object of uh, harassment, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, and this is, again, uh, political. 
and they have tried to attack his family. He's had credible risks on his life. It's just another one of those sad commentaries that a physician who has clearly had an impact on life because of internet, rumors, things such as that, has had to fear for his own life. And, and it is a sad commentary. So I thought it was important for us to take a little bit of time out to say thank you to Dr. Anthony Fauci for all of his work in helping us stay healthier. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be talking a little bit about the new Alzheimer's drug, Lacanamab. And uh, our guest in the second half of today's show is going to be Dr. Javed Ilias. And Dr. Ilias uh, is an interventional neurosurgeon. This is a fascinating field that I really want to let everybody know about uh, because it is really changing the way things are done when it comes to neurosurgery. If you have any questions for me or issues that come up during the week, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. We're back on Healthy Rounds. Ooh, child, I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And a topic uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, in the past, and we've had guests on talking about it, is new drugs for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, when you think about it, we have 5.7 million Americans who suffer from Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things we really fear as we get older is developing Alzheimer's disease. So it's important that any drug that may be available, any treatment that be available, that we look at it carefully and try to expedite approval. And that's what's happened with this drug, lecanemib. Lecanemib is a monoclonal antibody. We've talked about them before, right? And the treatment even of COVID or any other diseases. This is the newest field, the newest development of drugs. And this drug is up for FDA approval in January of this year because it has shown that it can slow the progression of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease by 27% in patients with early stage Alzheimer's disease. So let's back up. What does that all mean? Well, first of all, early stage Alzheimer's disease. It means that you have to recognize that you have the problem and seek appropriate medical care to get evaluated and tested to really define that it is early Alzheimer's disease. Does it cure Alzheimer's disease? No. But if you could slow the decline, that speaks to something. That speaks to something we need to investigate. And the reason it does, it, and the predominance of this work was done in research at Yale, right here in Connecticut, is there's a protein called beta amyloid. An amyloid in general are proteins um, that attack the brain, form in the brain, and form plaques. So we know that people with more severe Alzheimer's disease have more amyloid and more plaques. So what they found was that in the studies where they used this drug, the amyloid would drop in, in amount, and there'd be less decline as opposed to a placebo. 
at 18 months. So it's an 18-month study that they looked at. Uh, and it's important because just having some pathologic evidence that the drug produced the change is a big deal. So what's the downside? Well, the downside is the risk. Two out of every 1,800 patients had bleeds in their brain. And this is an area of concern. Obviously, bleeding in the brain is something that could really precipitate your demise. But you have to also take into consideration that Alzheimer's patients in general are already prone to having brain bleeds. So you're taking people who already have a risk independent of getting a drug like lecanemid, and when you give it to them, this may increase the likelihood of a bleed. So it's really a risk-reward that people have to consider. And really, the emphasis now is really to do more testing and start getting the drug out there because when you talk to people who have early Alzheimer's disease, and these are people who could still make decisions but have really gradually becoming more incapacitated, typically at a young age in their 50s or so, uh, most, most are going to opt to take it and, and take a shot at it. And what, what I've found, and, and I think that it's something we all think about from that standpoint. The other thing we've heard about from a neurologic standpoint is Celine Dion announced that she has stiff person syndrome. Uh, maybe it's a sign of my age, but when it first came out, we always called it stiff man syndrome. So at least we've become politically correct. And actually, we've become somewhat smarter by calling it stiff person syndrome because uh, it affects uh, women in a two-to-one ratio more than men. And basically, stiff person syndrome, it's one of those terms that's very descriptive of what it is. Stiff person syndrome or painful crippling muscle spasms so if you've had ever had a muscle cramp right that spasm where you just it's just this intense pain if you could imagine that happening in multiple muscles in multiple sites at any time now typically it's brought on in these patients with a sudden loud noise or a quick movement uh, stress if they're under a lot of stress or suddenly you go into a, a very cold temperature, it's going to precipitate these muscle spasms. And what happens is if you're walking, for example, you're standing and you start getting these muscle spasms, you're going to fall. So frequent falls is a complication of stiff person syndrome. Um, you know, and it affects, it doesn't affect many people, saying between one and two people per million. So there hasn't been a lot of work done on this. Something we've talked about on this show has been when you do drug studies and when you study something, you need large populations of people with the problem. And we don't have that with stiff person syndrome. It's treated by neurologic teams of people who specialize in movement disorders. There are a few centers around the world, around the country, uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Johns Hopkins are among them where they have people who are dedicated to treating patients with this. And one of the problems is that before it's diagnosed, it takes about seven years. 
So people may be presenting with muscle cramps, but not a lot of physicians are familiar with the diagnosis. And you just think it's cramping um, from exercise or any other stimulus. We think the problem is autoimmune because uh, what we have seen is uh, in uh, two out of three people, um, they have antibodies against what's called anti-glutamic acid decarboxylase, so an enzyme. So we believe that it is an autoimmune problem. The treatments are things that relax muscle, so baclofen, uh, Valium. Uh, some people are now at, at Johns Hopkins, they have a trial of Botox to try and relax muscle. But also these immune therapies, so using steroids, or other drugs that result in immunosuppression may help folks with this. So there's work being done on it. An interesting thing is it doesn't shorten somebody's life. I mean, it is crippling in many ways, and there's a lot of functional impairment, uh, you can imagine, in doing the things that you want to do and always being susceptible to this and having to be on uh, medication. Uh, I have to say, I've never seen a true case of it. Um, I have seen people referred to me for this problem uh, of having muscle cramps, and I have in, in turn referred them on to specialists and specialty centers. Um, and in both of those cases, it was proven not to be stiff person syndrome. So um, you can imagine how rare that is um, that I've not ever seen it. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Javed Elias. Uh, Dr. Elias is a neurosurgeon, um, and he is going to talk to us about interventional neurosurgery. He is a neurosurgeon at Trinity Health of New England. He practices at St. Francis Hospital. If you have any questions, you could reach me live at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. <music> Welcome back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you uh, with us on this lovely Saturday morning. And it's great to have as my guest today, Dr. Javed Ilyas. Dr. Ilyas is a neurosurgeon who practices interventional neurosurgery. In addition to his neurosurgical training, uh, he uh, spent he came to us after spending time at the University of New Mexico. Um, as a faculty member there. And he did a great deal of his training at um, really one of the foremost uh, centers in the world um, at the uh, Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Um, in Europe, you designate centers uh, like a neurosurgical center uh, where they develop a special expertise and he spent time there really learning uh, this really necessary skill of interventional neurosurgery, and I've been looking forward to having him on to really talk about that. Javed, welcome to the show. Tony, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to be on the show today and talk to you. So let's, let's start from the beginning. What is interventional neurosurgery? People think of neurosurgery, right? They think of getting a saw out, you need to open up the skull, and you need to either clip off an aneurysm, remove a tumor, or do some um, procedure such as that. So what is interventional neurosurgery? 
you know, as you are well aware, historically, neurosurgeons have um, used very open and invasive techniques to solve problems that affect the brain and the spinal. Especially when it comes to the brain, uh, you would do something called a craniotomy, which involved uh, taking a part of the skull out to get to parts of the brain and then access the problem that um, needs to be fixed in various ways, either removing them or tying, um, you know, aneurysms off. Neurointerventional surgery is um, relatively new, but not very new field of uh, neurosurgery where we use very minimally invasive methods very similar to what cardiologists use uh, for the heart. We use uh, endovascular techniques. We go inside blood vessels, either often through the femoral artery or the radial artery. We go into the brain to treat these problems without having to put patients through the regular rigors of um, an open brain surgery or open head surgery. So let's start with something people understand. You you drew the analogy with cardiology. So stents. We all know people go out, they have a narrow coronary artery. Somebody goes in, interventionally puts a stent in, and uh, dilates uh, the artery. Um, can you do that in the brain? And if so, how do you do that? We definitely uh, can do that in the brain, and we do them um, very um, limited, but that's a possibility that we have. You know, similar to what the cardiologists do with the heart, uh, when they have blockages in the heart, they put a stent. We often encounter blockages in the neck that leads to strokes uh, in the brain. And we do put stents very often in the neck for these problems. And in the past, we always uh, resorted to using open surgery where we'd open up the neck and clean up this artery and suture them back. And, you know, uh, depending on the anatomy, these days we choose uh, either to do that or we... Um, defer to something more uh, newer, such as putting a stent, either through transfemoral route or even something called the transcarotid artery revascularization, where we actually go directly into the carotid artery. So the field is very vast, and I think it's very exciting to be in this field during this time, because not only are we reaping the benefits of previous research, but also we see a lot more um, expansion of the field. How does it compare, so, since we're on the topic of the carotid artery, how does it compare to doing a carotid dissection and opening it up and cleaning it out um, versus uh, putting a stent in? You know, as you very well um, know, that there have been vast randomized controlled trials that have yep. looked at these techniques, and they show that both techniques are comparable uh, in their effectiveness and as, as well as, you know, risk from the procedure itself. Um, oftentimes people um, choose to do the surgery just because of its long-term durability. But you know, very many times we do have uh, patients who might benefit from the stent more than the surgery and we do, we do you know, take them through that route. Yeah, I think especially in higher risk patients, um, doing it endovascularly is probably the best way to go. But here's what True. I want to get. I mean, let's get to the the big stuff, and that is aneurysms and the use of coils. It's something that, uh, you know, I became familiar with, I guess, about 30 years ago is when when started using them. But that field has changed. Can you talk a little bit about aneurysms and how the insertion of a coil can resolve it? Sure. Uh, you know, aneurysms are small blister-like projections that come out of arteries in the brain. They can happen in other parts of the body as well, but uh, we see them very often in the brain being neurosurgeons. 
and um, historically they underwent open surgery to clip these aneurysms to prevent them from bleeding. In the past, people always um, often presented to the hospital after a rupture, which caused a very bad intracranial or a bleeding in the brain, intracranial hemorrhage, which um, sometimes even was deadly. So these days, um, for the last 30 years, but especially in the last 10, 20 years, there has been so much development in the endovascular field that we not only have different types of coils, we also have newer um, gadgets, newer technology that we use to treat different kinds of aneurysm. So instead of having to open up the head, we now make a um, small puncture wound either in the groin or the wrist, depending on which artery we prefer to take up to the brain, and we take catheters small enough to go in these vessels, bed vessels, and we travel up all the way to the aneurysm and place coils within the aneurysm, which allows them to clot off over time. This is a revolutionary um, change in how we treated these patients. The patients um, are much uh, better in their recovery. They don't have to go through the invasiveness of having um, to have their heads opened up. Yeah, and it's among people's greatest fears, right? When when you get a headache, when you get a bad headache, the you think of two things, right? Do I have an aneurysm or do I have a brain tumor? And uh, I think that's that's a big fear um, for people. And uh, I think just knowing that if you can identify your symptoms early enough, there's this type of uh, treatment. And uh, this week uh, at Hartford Hospital, actually, I got to attend Grand Rounds by Dr. Alberts, who is the chairman there. And uh, he is a stroke specialist, but he talked about the basilar artery. And maybe you could talk a little bit for our guests and describe why the basilar artery is so crucial when we start thinking of stroke and aneurysm. Definitely. Um, most of us think of the carotid arteries being important because they supply most of the brain and they are present on either side of the neck. But behind the neck, we have another artery which is formed by the vertebral arteries that go through the spine. And uh, this artery called the basilar artery supplies many vital structures in the brain as you're well aware. It supplies most of the posterior fossa, the cerebellum, but more importantly, it also supplies the brainstem and the thalamus. And these are very essential and vital structures in the brain that are almost important not just, uh, you know, um, to even to be alive. So a problem within the basilar artery could have a huge detrimental effect on the, on the patient if it was um, not managed or it is unable to be managed uh, well. And the very, you know, common problems that we see in the basilar artery are usually aneurysms of the basilar artery and uh, strokes due to occlusion of the basilar artery from a clot traveling from um, either the heart or uh, somewhere else. Well, I guess one of the things uh, when I think of the basilar artery is um, an aneurysm in this area because, you know, previously if someone had a tip of the basilar syndrome or tip of the basilar artery, you know, at the most proximal portion of the basilar artery, right, there was nothing to do about it, right? Because when you think of the basilar artery, you're so deep in the brain trying to go in there and clip it or take it out. Uh, uh, you'd have tremendous deficit. 
Can you talk a little bit about how you approach these problems, um, whether it be with thrombectomy or um, if there's an aneurysm from the basilar artery? Definitely. As you mentioned, uh, in the past, uh, approaching aneurysms uh, of the basilar artery involved opening up the head, and the basilar artery is located so deep in the brain that often it led to very uh, debilitating deficits after surgery due to, uh, you know, the surgical exposure or access or approach itself. Um, what I do, uh, and most of us in the neurointerventional world do, is we reach the aneurysms of the basilar artery um, by being endovascular or um, minimally invasive. We take a catheter through through the wrist or the groin, and we actually cross the art, aortic arch and go up into the vertebral arteries to the basilar artery. And using these catheters, we either put coils in these aneurysms to treat them, or sometimes we use a stent, some uh, special stents called flow-diverting stents, which would preferentially divert flow from the aneurysms away from the aneurysms, leading them to thrombos over time. And for strokes that arise from the basilar artery, we do uh, take a similar approach by taking catheters up into these arteries, we either use a suction catheter, which aspirates the clot, or sometimes we use a stent retriever, which is uh, basically a stent that is not deployed but pulled back out of the body to pull a clot out, almost like a snare would do. So due to these newer techniques, uh, patients uh, are not put through the you know, rigors of having to uh, go through a very complicated, complex, and... Uh, risky surgery as they had to do in the past. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you brought up the topic of mechanical thrombectomy, and, uh, or as I say, uh, going fishing for a clot, uh, in the sense that um, you're able to go in and pull a clot out of a blood vessel. So when patients are starting to have a stroke, we, you know, we've emphasized to our patients and on this program early identification if you're having symptoms of stroke. How soon does that person need to get to you before it's too late to fish out the clot and do a mechanical thrombectomy? As we all know, time is brain. So the sooner we get patients um, to the hospital to help them out with their stroke, the better it is for them. But to answer your question, I think the window to intervene to do a thrombectomy to remove a clot from the brain to help a patients recover from a stroke or even reverse the stroke has been expanded to 24 hours. Um, for a long time, stroke was managed completely uh, conservatively where the mainstay of treatment was supportive care with rehabilitation to improve some of the symptoms. Um, but as we have seen in the last 30 years, since the advent of TPA, the clot buster, there has been further improvements in stroke care where acute stroke is now managed not only with the administration of TPA, but also doing mechanical thrombectomy where we fish the clot out. And initially, the window for intervention was within six hours, very similar to cardiac intervention for uh, heart attacks. But in 2018, we had further studies, randomized controlled trials that came out, which actually showed a lot of um, data supporting intervention up to 24 hours since the onset of symptoms. So 
you know, as long as you are within that window of time, you are still eligible for treatment. You do would you do go through some investigative studies, which would uh, make you um, part of the treatment, or which would exclude you from the treatment. But anybody who has stroke-like symptoms, or anybody who sees their family or friends have stroke-like symptoms, should try to bring them to the hospital as soon as possible because every minute counts in saving more brain cells, which would eventually lead to a better improve, better outcome from this process. David, if, if you give a patient clot-busting medication, are they still eligible for clot retrieval, right? Because if we give them a clot-buster, right, suddenly you're more prone to bleeding. Um, can they still think, go forward with a mechanical thrombectomy? Because we give TPA pretty quickly now. Yes, and I think that's a great question. And many of us have that question, especially coming you know, from um, a non-medical setup, whether just giving the medicine is sufficient enough. Why do we have to like, you know, go through a procedure? So oftentimes what we do know and we do see practically is that the medicine is really good for small clots and small vessels in the brain. But the thrombectomy really is effective for big clots and big major arteries in the brain. And actually, there are some studies that have shown that having given the medicine or having uh, you know, received the medicine gives patients a better chance of having a more uh, efficient and effective thrombectomy wow. in, in comparison with people who might not have received that right. So by no means is having received TPA a contraindication for thrombectomy. Um, all centers in the world pretty much uh, have very standardized stroke treatment uh, algorithms and paradigms. And they have different sets of eligibility and exclusion criteria. And they are very overlapping. They are not mutually exclusive, if that answers your question. Uh, it does. It, it's a very complete answer. Let's talk a little bit. We've been talking about arterial things, but one of the things you and I talked about this week was uh, venous stenting for people with pseudotumor cerebri, pseudotumor cerebri being a headache disorder um, in people, and it results in visual changes and really loss of vision in addition to these severe headaches. Uh, and this is the first I've heard of venous stenting. I've known uh, where they cut a little window around the ophthalmic artery, but what, what can you tell us about venous stenting um, as a treatment for pseudotumor cerebri and for other conditions? Definitely. Um, even though not very widely prevalent across, across the country in terms of all uh, neuro-interventional surgery providers uh, or physicians who do this, I personally have a lot of interest and... Um, it's a topic that is close to my heart because um, historically I have been involved with patients with pseudotumor cerebri, or sometimes we call them intracranial idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And, you know, it's very hard to, you know, feel their suffering, but they have very severe headaches almost every day, and it is very detrimental to their quality of life, even though it may not be life-threatening. And sometimes they do develop... Uh, sudden visual, uh, visual symptoms leading even sometimes to blindness. So historically, we would put a VP shunt, a ventricular peritoneal shunt, where we diverted, say, spinal fluid from the brain into the belly. Now, this was based on the concept that uh, head being a closed space, when there is increased pressure, we had to move some, some part of, you know, some 
part of the compartment out so that there can be more room and reduce the pressure on the head. But we never believed that the spinal fluid was the problem. It just so happened that we were able to move spinal fluid easier than brain or blood vessels in the brain. Sure. You know, what we have recently found out is that many of these patients developed increased pressure on the brain because they might have venous narrowing, like their, um, not necessarily veins, but their venous sinuses, which are large veins in the head, which drain blood back into the heart, could be narrow in very common areas, which we see very often. Now, what this led to was a new thought, a new school of thought to approach these um, issues more head-on, where instead of diverting spinal fluid, which had nothing to do with the whole problem to begin with, which was just an indicator of the problem, we, uh, you know, felt like, what if we just approached and, you know, took direct action at the problem itself, where we tried to improve the narrowing by, by putting a stent or even sometimes even doing uh, balloon angioplasty. And uh, this has been a remarkable, like, you know, eye-opening for many of us, because we see these patients having such great improvement in their symptoms and their quality of life to the extent that oftentimes we avoid putting a patient. And you know, I'm sure you have seen many V-patient patients in your life, and it, it is a lifelong process to have a V-patient in place and to deal with the problems that arise from having a shunt in place. So putting a venous stent, which often uh, we end up putting in the transverse sinus or a sigmoid sinus because that's where we commonly see these narrowings, has completely been a game changer in this disease process. Granted, not all of these patients might be eligible. I think that's why they need to uh, see a doctor who would evaluate them and do some non-invasive imaging, um, CAT scan with dye to figure out if they have preoperative narrowing before pursuing this avenue of treatment. But definitely in, in the subset of patients who fall into this group, this is much more um, you know, beneficial and helpful than doing the usual um, frequent lumbar taps or spinal taps or putting a VP shunt. John, and, i got to tell you that, I mean, one of the things I love about doing this program is I never cease to learn something. And um, despite being in practice 36 years and seeing these patients over time, uh, I've never heard of doing this venous stenting, but it, it makes sense. It's one of those things that just makes sense if it can be done. And I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people with it. Listen, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for taking time today to, to spend with us. And thank you for coming here from New Mexico. And leaving what's probably better weather than we have, but uh, coming here and sharing uh, really your talent and skill and knowledge with the people of our community. Javed, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your invitation as well. It's been a pleasure being here and discussing and talking about these topics, which uh, you know are close to both of our hearts. And I'm looking forward to um, contributing um, to the society and the community here and. It's it's great to be back um, in some colder weathers. I was missing my four seasons, which okay. I hope, like you know, I would get to see in the next few months. Great to have you. That's Dr. Javed Elias. And um, if you need to, if you have questions about things that he said, you can get in touch with me. Um, and as far as his, he is a neurosurgeon at uh, St. Francis Hospital. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap things up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and I want to wrap up today's show by thanking my guest, 
Dr. Elias uh, from uh, St. Francis Hospital. Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. As always, I'll be taking your questions um, at the info at alessimd.com line. If you missed any part of today's program and have an interest in uh, what we talked about with interventional neurosurgery, um, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just go to odyssey.com, uh, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.